0: Welcome to resistance radio. I am John Kane. I am your host. I'm flying solo again today. Hey, we are not on WBAI today, but we are streaming live here on Facebook so people can catch us no matter what, wherever you are. Uh, we are uh, on WPFW uh, this week and uh, and look, I still have I still have a show for you. So First off, let me remind people that we are a listener support radio, and even if you're not listening on WBAI today, i still encourage you, if you're listening on Facebook or wherever, to um, to support WBAI. You can go to their, uh, their their pledge line, which is 212-209-2950, or go to give2wbai.org. If you are listening on WPFW, which many of you will be this week exclusively, um, I ask you to go to their pledge line, which is 202-588-9739. Or go to WPFWFM.org and you can uh, make a pledge there. Look, um, both stations are in their um, uh, winter fun drive, so I encourage you to support your Pacifica station or your Pacifica affiliate uh, or wherever you listen. I know that there were a couple of Internet um, radio programs uh, like uh, Netroots Radio who who carry the show. Um, You know, look, support whatever platform um, is essentially carrying the show and uh, and and supporting the show and you know look we, that's that's how the stations stay up look'm I'm, I'm gonna be around no matter what I'll find some means to get my voice out because I think many of the conversations we have here are sorely needed but I will say look I know that I sometimes get criticism for um, reiterating if not repeating um, certain news stories or certain issues uh, <laughs> from time to time. Look, I know we don't always have the same people listening each week. And you know what? Even if I do repeat you know, issues related to missing and murdered indigenous women or gaming or or racism or mascots or, what, or whatever the case is, it needs to be repeated because you've never heard much of this stuff before. And at, at, the, at the risk of being redundant, I'm going to re- reiterate these issues over and over again. Because they still haven't found a lodge in most people's minds or in their hearts. So that is why I talk about some of these issues. Um, For those of you who are on Facebook, uh, you see I am wearing my, my, my Abraham Lincoln Dakota 38 shirt today. And there's a reason for it. Look, I don't know why during Black History Month there has to be an emphasis on heroizing Abraham Lincoln. Look, I get it, the whole Emancipation Proclamation thing the great emancipator, he didn't sign up for that. That's not what, he, what what, his real philosophical views were all about. Look, did he oppose slavery? Sure. But did he support equality? No, not even close. If he had his way, he would have uh, shipped as, as many black people to Africa as possible. In fact, that was part of his plan. And of course, the other part of his plan was, well, to, um, you know, to, to stimulate the economy and all of those stuff, we're gonna expand the country. Well, what does that mean? It means, that, it means take native lands. And this was happening during the Civil War, <laughs> prior to it, during it, and afterwards. And so I have a whole lot of trouble with this idea of creating these historical silos where you only view a historical character with through one lens. And, and oftentimes that lens might be the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or in this case... Using you know this Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln's to somehow heroize him in the eyes of, of black people. Look, to be clear, the Emancipation Proclamation did not free all slaves. It, it only uh, outlawed or, or essentially declared emancipation for those who have been, were enslaved in those slave states that were. You know, in, in conflict with the North, slavery didn't end in California. Slavery didn't end in in uh, in other parts of uh, of the what was becoming rapidly becoming more and more of the, of the U.S. Native people would be enslaved for many years after after uh, uh, slavery was abolished. And in fact, look as this month started, I I, I commented that look I heard some great programming. I heard some great programming about um, not just about the, the slave era, but the um, abolition, uh, reconstruction, the Industrial Revolution, Jim Crow era, the civil rights. I mean, all kinds, all kinds of stuff. And you know what? Some of those folks, those black folks on the radio did a very good job representing the true history in fact many of them mentioned the fact that native people were, were still being enslaved for years after abolition many of them mentioned the fact that the genocide that was being waged against native people would, con- would continue all the way through reconstruction so I before anybody starts to heroize Abraham Lincoln so much stop break you know stop creating this 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 you know monument to stick them on. This pedestal to stick him on because he was he was very much a white supremacist. And you know what? (laughs) You know, I I don't want to (laughs) throw I don't want to throw Frederick Douglass too far under a bus here. But Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln were not on the same page. Now, did Frederick Douglass uh, as a a a very popular, charismatic and and well-known or famous, I would say, abolitionist. Did he influence Lincoln? Sure, but Frederick Douglass wanted black people to be Americans. He wanted to advance America. He, Frederick Douglass was all about expansionism. He said, "Get rid of those stinking Indians. Make more room for black people to have land." In fact, that was part of the push. We're gonna uh, we're gonna, we're gonna free free black people from the, the 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 bonds of slavery, and then we're gonna give them land. Well, where the hell do you think that land was gonna come from? Frederick Douglass was pretty outspoken. Look, and I'm not criticizing the work he did as an abolitionist. But it's it's just too bad that that some of that work has to come at the expense of of really subjugating and oppressing or speaking out against Native people. You know, I, I mentioned this sometimes before about Buffalo soldiers. Buffalo soldiers weren't a good thing as far as Native people were concerned. A lot of that was about Former formerly enslaved men getting these military positions to kill Native people. I mean, that's what Bubble soldiers were. They were being used as quote-unquote Indian fighters. And they were promised land and they were promised all, you know, all, all kinds of other things. Of course, they would still undergo incredible amounts of racism. As and and of course, it still, it still exists today. But man, I, I gotta tell you, it is such. To me, I get I get annoyed when I hear about um, Lincoln Lincoln being praised. I, I remember they, there was a story a few years ago because they had put the Emancipation Proclamation on display, and there were people lined up for blocks just to just to witness you know just to see it. Well, the reason I'm wearing my Dakota Thirty Eight shirt today in studio is because I I just have to remind people that while Many people, including many black people, will still regard Abraham Lincoln as the great emancipator. Native people will view him differently. In fact, executioner comes to mind. And why would that be? Because the largest mass execution, and I mean an execution that came uh, through a sentence, a court-derived sentence. The largest mass execution in the history of the United States was signed by Abraham Lincoln. And that execution took place the day after Christmas in 1862. The day after Christmas, 1862, is a week before January 1st of 1863, which is when that Emancipation Proclamation essentially became became law, I guess. You can't view historical figures in a silo. Not not Frederick Douglass, not Abraham Lincoln, not Teddy Roosevelt. You can't sit there and say, oh, Teddy Roosevelt was great. He, he gave us national parks. Well, where the hell do you think those parks came from? He stripped the land away from Native people. Why? Because he was an absolute devoted white supremacist who thought the majesty of these natural wonders of the world, these great nat- natural spaces should be preserved so white people can enjoy them. And let's get rid of those stinking Indians again. You know, I, I, I sometimes have to remind people Thomas Jefferson referred to Native people as merciless Indian savages in the Declaration of Independence. That's the first great American document. That's that's the reference to Native people. That's American history. And it doesn't get better from there on, folks. It it really doesn't. Like I said, um, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he he suggested that he didn't necessarily believe that the only good Indian was a dead Indian. But he would suggest nine out of ten were and he wouldn't want to look too closely at the 10th. That's a quote. i paraphrase a little bit, but that's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. Look, I try to mention some of these issues because there's the view that when you have a conversation about racism, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's the, the relationship between race and church, whatever, there is a tendency by all the media, mainstream media, public radio, even community radio to leave us out of the conversation. And I'm not saying that we need to that we as native people need to take space away from Black History Month. But I do appreciate it when when some of these pundits are on the radio that they that they do bring up some of the relevant and contemporary native history that was happening at the same time that some of these historical events changing the lives of black people, um, how, you know, what was occurring then. But I'm not saying it's a requirement, but you can't silo, you can't create these pedestals and these narrow views of some of these hysterical, historical figures. And it's because you're not telling the truth. You're, you're lying through omission. Look, if you're going to tell the story of Abraham Lincoln and, and his, what are they, they call a team of rivals as that Kern's woman wrote in, in her book, if you're going to tell about how conflicted Abraham Lincoln was and, and how he wanted all these views thrown at him so he could come, reach the best des, the, the decisions and that kind of stuff, that he was a unifier, not the emancipator. He was a, He was a unifier. Well, he wasn't exactly unifying native people. So I I'm, I'm just saying you've got to put this stuff in, in a broader perspective. And look, can, can we dig up dirt on anybody? Myself included, sure. Have at it. And by all means understand that there's good that a lot of people do, but there's also terrible things. And you know, and I what I heard it said once, you can't judge a person by the worst thing they've done in their lives. Really? Uh, Adolf Hitler, you don't think he can be judged for the Holocaust? I mean, you, you, don't, you, you don't think that can, th- that's fair? So why wouldn't we as Native people be able to judge Abraham Lincoln for signing the execution order for the largest mass execution in the history of the United States? Why? Why wouldn't we? Oh, I know why, because maybe those people were really criminals. Well, let's, let me explain why those people were executed. Because over 300 people, Native people were tried, and they were tried because earlier in 1862, Lincoln signed into law the Homestead Act, which opened up native lands for white people, and frankly, <laughs> some emancipated uh, what would ultimately be emancipated you know, former slaves. Not so much. I mean, it said, it said it on paper. It didn't really happen in practice. It was wealthy white people who got most most of the land, most of our land, and you know what? I say wealthy because it did cost money, but it would take forever, if at all, that the money would ever come to Native people. We experienced the largest periods of land loss from Lincoln onwards, you know, for for that, you know, for that 50 or 100 years. Ironically, and I mentioned this before, when you talk about the, the residential schools, these federally funded church-run schools, prisons, for for Native children that operated for for a hundred years, from from about the Lincoln era all the way up until the to the 1970s, we experienced the largest period of land loss during that hundred years in in all of history. You know, and look, check it out. I mean, you you, you can see it. It's, it's that's a matter of a public record. And you know what? We still do experience land loss today. I mean we we experience it with every highway they run through our territories every easement they they take from us every right of way they put through our territories the, the new york state thruway runs through Seneca territory and they didn't get paid crap for it and the and new york state continues to make money off that thruway they charge everybody to ride on that road that unfettered access of of trade and commerce via the, the thruway and rail and gas lines and power lines and information lines that all happens right through through our territories. It happens right through Seneca territory. While we have to fight everything, everything, every day for whatever small pieces of commerce we we, we, we try to assert. So let's not pretend that oh yeah it was just the Dawes Act and the Allotment Act and it was the Homestead Act that where we lost land. We're still fighting Land loss every single day. Now, do we get some back Some on occasion? Yeah, sometimes. Usually we have to buy it. Regardless, what, I, I think back to the, uh, there was a thing called the Cobell suit, which uh, was named um, for Eloise Cobell, who, who brought this large class action suit against the Interior Department. Because the evidence suggested that there was 100 billion, that's with a B, 100 billion dollars of native assets that was mismanaged, lost, stolen, unaccounted for, whatever—a hundred billion. I mean, during the um, end of the Bush administration, he had actually considered trying to settle that for forty billion dollars, <laughs> but during the Obama administration, to settle for four, and more than half of that four billion dollars went into land acquisition um, purchases, re- you know, reacquisition. So in other words, half of it went back to white people to get to get some of the land back. I mean, it's you can't make this stuff up, but that's you know, that's what we go through, and continue to go through. You know, look, I, I know I've talked on this show a bunch about what the Senecas are, are uh, going through with their fight for New York, with New York State. New York State trying to soak them for what essentially, if the New York State has a way, for over two billion dollars. It's already been a billion and a half. And that's money, that is a lot of money to the Seneca Nation. It ain't crap to to New York State. Hell, they burn through a billion a week just in Medicare. So we are in a constant struggle. So I find it really, really difficult. And and I actually doubt, uh, disheartening, to see any real estate in terms of time during Black History Month going to a white guy, especially one that only looks great if you edit and omit some of the most heinous things that he was responsible for. Look, am I I saying he deserved to be assassinated? No, not not even going there. Not even going there. But I will say, (laughs) during the Obama administration, when uh, they decided they were going to execute or assassinate Osama bin Laden, I found it not just insulting, but almost ironic that they codenamed him Geronimo. Yeah, they codenamed Osama bin Laden Geronimo. I gotta tell you, I think Osama bin Laden looks a lot more like Abraham Lincoln. He's a tall guy with a kind of a beard, you know, lanky guy. Codename Abraham Lincoln. No. <laughs> and just like Abraham Lincoln, who was, who was, Again, targeted for assassination, so was Osama bin Laden. Look, I know that wouldn't have been a popular thing to do, but you know what? From a Native per- perspective, we weren't real crazy about you uh, codenaming Osama bin Laden Geronimo either. So there's that. Um, but no, I, look, there's this tendency to, to view Native history, and, and, and actually not even, I take it back. I, I mentioned this before on the, on the, on the last week's show. We get designated November as Native American Heritage Month. That's not the same thing as History Month. because we're going to flower up what our heritage was, and and everybody can feel good about Native dance and song and feathers and beadwork and artwork and all that other stuff. But we don't want to talk about the harsh history. That's why I was somewhat envious but actually inspired by the strength of the voices that I heard at the beginning, at the beginning anyway, of Black History Month. Because they were strong voices, and they, and they and they attacked and addressed the tough history, the ugly history. And I know that that's essentially what the basis of all this CRT, critical race theory hysteria. Oh, we can't we can't be telling history that's going to make white people uncomfortable. Well, I got to tell you, you can't tell black history, you can't tell Native history, without making white people uncomfortable. And you know, if they're not uncomfortable, that's worse yet. So there's an obligation now. Should some of this be age-appropriate? Yeah, I don't think that you should introduce children of any color to, well, let me say this. They shouldn't be introduced to real lynchings or even really probably pictures and film strips and, and films about lynching either. But I think they should know early on that there's an unpleasant history that Even they at, you know, five, six, seven years old need to begin to reckon with. I mean, it does nobody any good to tell happy little pilgrim and happy little Indian stories, you know, around Thanksgiving. I mean, it's it's not only a lie, but what value is it? Now, if you want to talk about some of the historical changes that, you know, that maybe have offered some relief to the oppression, that's fine. But you got to talk about the oppression. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Otherwise, you get, you get a whole lot of white people saying, well, this affirmative action thing is wrong. We should not give any kind of race consideration to people going to college. Well, yeah, if you look at it in a vacuum, it seems, it seems un- unjust. But if you look at the full picture, all of a sudden you realize, yeah, there still hasn't been enough to, um, to make up for the bad that was done. Not just, I mean, to, to all people of color. If you don't teach the history then you're gonna have more and more generations just viewing marginalized people as people who deserve to have been marginalized because of their underperformance. Their, they don't earn as much money. I mean, and that's true, but why? If you don't tell, put it in historical context, if you don't understand that when the GI Bill was, was giving millions of dollars to, to white men who served in the military, for homes, for education, and yet that wasn't happening for, for black people. If you, if you don't address the inequities, not just of, of the slave era, I mean well out, coming out of Jim Crow era. And you know what? And, and even through, look, do we, do we have civil rights today still yet? I, I don't know. I don't think so. We still have tremendous amounts of racism. You only need to look at a prison population. You only need to look at the income gap. But again, if you look at the income gap and you say, well, it's their own fault. I mean, look, I even hear some black people say it about their own people. I, you know, I hear Native people say it. It's like we're going to ignore the historical context that has created the imbalance. Look, most Native territories, what people know as reservations, Are not great places to live. Why? Because of the poverty, because of all of the social ills that are associated with poverty: substance abuse, alcoholism, suicide, depression, um, you know, violence against women. All all these things happen because of policy. I mean, the conditions of our native territories are, are creations. Those conditions were created by policy. You know, I've I, been go, going through this thing with the with the Seneca Nation over the state trying to squeeze them for revenue. Let me explain this a little bit. Most native territories, and 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 I'm going to speak specifically, but but this goes for most native territories. We don't have a tax system. Now, it's a choice not to have it. I mean, we obviously could create, you know, do a campaign and get enough people to, you know, try to support doing taxes. But philosophically, we have an issue with this idea of taxes. I mean, mostly because we've been fighting the the state and federal government for all these years. So our system of public finance, I know most people think, well, yeah, there's no, they don't have no public finance. They just get handouts from the government. No, that's not true. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some dollars that come in, but you know what? Much of that is owed. Yes, it's an obligation. It's not charity. I mean, there is language in many of the land exchanges that we were screwed in that still talked about things like health, education, and welfare. And I don't mean welfare in terms of just social services. The fact that it's been reduced to that is is another racist thing. The idea that our health care forces us to go through Medicaid to to get service at, at a, at a, um, a nation's clinic that is supposed to be supported by Indian health services, but it isn't fully funded by Indian health services. Instead, they find a way out to push, to push that burden onto the states through Medicare and Medicaid. It shouldn't come from the state's um, safety net system. It, we shouldn't be going through social services to get uh, health care provided to us at our clinics. The federal government should pay it. Why? Because that's what they said they were going to do. But to my point, we don't have have a system of public finance on our territories. We we have enterprises that are run by the the nation essentially. Sometimes it's casinos and that's what most people are familiar with. So the gaming industry has actually provided the largest single source of public finance on native territories. And and let me say it again, it's all of the revenue from gaming that we get to keep, if we're not being screwed from the states, <coughs> runs e- runs first the operation, the gaming operation, and then it it funds the nation. Now there are other enterprises. Some territories actually do have some extractive industries. Some have you know other tourism beyond gaming. There are stores, um, and like I said, there there's any number of revenue streams that come from from natural resources in one way or another. So, but that's where our public finance comes. Think about this. Average American citizen gets his income taxed and when he buys something, he pays a sales tax. And then when he sells something, he gets taxed again. You get taxed making the money, spending the money and, 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 and selling the stuff that you bought with the money. You get taxed twice sometimes on the same product. I mean, it's 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 really absurd, and and then there's you know death taxes, you know, you know, and all this other stuff. But and look, I'm not judging that tax system. It's yours. You love it, you like it, you hate it, whatever. Else, it's yours. But that's not ours. We have to fund everything that we do on our territories through the enterprises, and 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 again, some obligations that the federal government has towards Native people that are. That is always tied to an obligation that they made in some sort of land concession or, other, or, or some other concession, and rarely is it fair. <laughs> you know, I think about the Canadago Treaty. The Canadago Treaty uh, um, called for distribution of farm equipment, um, livestock, tools, and cloth. Um, on annual basis. And I can't remember what the cloth It's like. I don't know if it's $3,000 worth of cloth. They don't even do the other stuff because it's not. The, the, the amount that gets paid annually. This is from 1794. That number hasn't changed once. For all the land that was ceded, for everything that the surrounding municipalities, counties, townships, cities have, have benefited from what was taken. From those six, the six nations, enough cloth, you know, to make about a four-inch square, is distributed each year. And you know, and the crazy part is, and I, I look, I know, I, I always get native people pissed off at I me mean, when I say this, but our people treat that cloth like it's a shroud of Turin, like it is so sacred. I mean, they literally call it that. And of course. The federal government, they've got, they've got somebody in Washington whose job it is every year that has to go out there and requisition bolts of cloth to send up to the to the Six Nations, to all of us, a couple of thousand dollars worth of, worth of cloth. Now, I'm not saying that's the only obligation. Obviously, I've, I've talked about things like health, education, and welfare. But in terms of a payment of a good or service that was committed to forever, that's it, a couple of thousand dollars worth of cloth. But again, my my point is that we don't have the same system you have out there. So, think about this: the money that comes into our territories leaves almost immediately. Almost immediately, we have a couple of stores here. You know, we have we have some gas stations and some and some um, convenience stores that basically sustain themselves because of tobacco sales or fuel sales. Now, where I live here on the Cataractas territory. We have um, a bunch of marijuana dispensaries and that kind of stuff. I mean, so we we have some stores, but we don't have grocery stores. We don't have department stores. We don't have fuel companies. We don't have any of the infrastructure that exists out there. So whether it's the individual Seneca who gets you know, some benefit from, from the gaming or whether it's the Seneca Nation, every dollar they get, leaves it it doesn't even circulate within the community i mean they they say whoever they are they say that in order for true economic benefit to be um gained from a dollar that comes into your community it's got to stay in the community it's got it's got to circulate you know two three four five times well that doesn't happen so the reality is the region outside you know the walmarts and the the tops grocery stores and the wegmans and all these other you know big box stores home depot they get the money as soon as we get it. We get it and boom, it's gone. And it's not just sales of products, it's services too. Look, you know, law firms, um, consultants, you know, any, any of the, the services that you, um, that you pay for, most of them it's getting paid off our territory. And that's, and that's the money that we get. Now keep in mind, Seneca Nation, which is one of the largest employers in Western New York uh, with its three gaming sites, of the employees are non-native. 95% are non senecas So that means, especially for the the non-natives who who don't live on territory, (laughs) that means income tax gets paid. The the state and federal government immediately make money off of the the salaries that they get paid. They buy a house, the property tax, the, the sales tax associated with the house, whatever fees they get off of, you know, financing and that kind of stuff. And of course, they immediately spend money into their local economies, you know, where their grocery stores are and everything. So what what you come to realize is that our systems are so different that for anybody to judge from the outside what our lives are like, if you don't consider some of this stuff, then you are not even really giving any due consideration to what our circumstances Now, like I said, we do have some stores, and we have to fight like hell for them. We have to fight the state over tobacco tax. We've got to fight the state over, uh, over fuel tax. We even fight the federal government over some certain taxes. There's a constant battle. Everything that we attempt to do is met with some level of resistance from the state and federal government, including gaming. I mean, think about this. There there was no gaming law. In 1987, there was was no laws on the books at the federal level or the state level that regulated our gaming. So what did they do? They created one out of thin air. They created a law that would impose the states in our business, create a whole bunch of layers of regulations that, that we had to go through to have a legal gaming operation under their current law. I mean, they were legal gaming operations before their current law, but now there are all these other stipulations that could make gaming illegal. And of course, hidden in all that ends up being the means for the state to charge us money. We have to actually pay the state for any of their expenses associated with them regulating us. Even though they, the state itself, gets most of the benefit from from our gaming. Because of the way the money comes and goes and and because it's mostly non-Native people who are paying taxes, income taxes. I mean, the state's already getting the lion's share of what we do. But on top of that, we get lured into this belief that we have to buy political will from the state. So we we get squeezed into these revenue-sharing agreements where the state offers us practically nothing and we give them practically everything. In the case of the Seneca Nation, at the, the last seven years of their initial gaming compact period term, they were paying the state 25% of the net slot drop. Now, that doesn't sound terrible. 25% they get to keep 75%? No, no, they didn't get to keep 75%. The state got their 25% right off the top. But all the expenses of the casino, the employees, even paying the state for their, their regulatory uh, expenses. Everything came out of the Seneca Nation, 75%. Several times, if not many times, along the way, the state was actually getting more revenue out of the, the Seneca slot machines than, than, the, than the Senecas were because they had to cover all the expenses. So it's not 25% of the net revenue. It's, it's, it's closer to 50% of the net revenue why the hell does the state get 50%? I mean, what did they possibly do that entitles them? Well, they claim they gave an exclusivity, but they didn't. So I, I think it's important that people realize our lives are different here. And I'm not saying it to complain. My biggest complaint isn't about what we've been able to carve out. It's what we have to fight to carve it out. And who do we have to fight we have to Fight the state? And we got to fight the federal government. And it doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat in the governor's mansion, or a Republican or a Democrat in the uh, in the White House. It doesn't matter. I mean, I was interviewed for a, a story this week about a, a guy who worked for the the Bureau of Indian Affairs. White guy. His job was to oversee the Office of Tribal Justice, which what he really was involved with was was overseeing the detention centers that existed, the the BIA funded detention centers that are on native territories. And there was a question raised because like 16 people died in in custody during this guy's tenure. So he retires and they hire him back as the consultant to review why these 16 people died, (laughs) died, why these 16 people died in custody. I mean, they hire the same guy who was responsible for overseeing these facilities where they died. I mean, how did that make any sense? And of course he's non-native, which gets to the other point about the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The overwhelming and vast majority of dollars that are expended by the federal government for quote-unquote Indian stuff is swallowed up by bureaucracy or by white people because you don't have native people who can do those jobs. Now, granted, I know they they put Deb Holland in that... Uh, and she's the interior secretary. Well, you know, that's good. But how many native people is she listening to? If, if they hire a white consultant to review why native people died in custody, why did they hire, why did they bring a bunch of native people into to testify and, and give some thoughts on that? This, this is kind of what we go through. I mean, this is, this, is, this is what our relationship with the state and federal government is like. It is a constant runaround. Look, the whole battle that the Seneca's are going through with, with the state of New York can be solved like that. It can be solved in a minute. All Deb Haaland has to do is look at the law and make the proper determination that the New York state is not providing a concession that entitles them to the revenue sharing that they're demanding. They're demanding now. I mean, the Senegal's paid them a billion and a half dollars uh, over the first 14 years. And then stop paying because said, no, there's no language in our compact that said we pay past that. New York says, "Oh, what? it may not be in there, but it's meant." What do you mean it's meant? They, so they go to a binding arbitration, and the two white guys, <laughs> who are, are, are the ju- two of the three judges, were white, and they say, "Yeah, yeah, it's meant. It's it's implied." There's no such thing as implied stipulations in a in a compact in a contract. There's a thing called the four corners doctrine of contract law. If it ain't in there. It ain't in there unless you got two white guys who would say, nah, we're putting it in there. The third judge, Kevin Washburn, who used to work for the Interior Department, he said those two white guys just rewrote the compact. Well, you know what? Then, Deb Haaland, you're the Interior Secretary, review what took place, note the injustice, note the alteration of the compact, adding language that wasn't there in the first place, and strike it. And don't let the state try to pull this crap. Well, we don't, we're not going to get paid. We're not going to renew the compact. You don't get a choice. You're bound by law to do it. So I want to mention that. Hey, look, I, I did want to give just an update. A um, And look, it's almost comical. And, you know, for those of you who have been following along, I have been fighting my old high school over their native mascot. They are the Cambridge Indians. Well, actually, they're not now. Today, As of today, they aren't because the – Commissioner of Education, the New York State Department of Education Commissioner, Betty Rosa, after having a petition filed with her, um, ruled in favor of four families who said, yes, you retired that mascot and then brought it back the next day. You didn't even give it due consideration. You didn't even even refute any of the information that was used in the deliberation to retire. You just undid it. That's arbitrary and capricious. And she says, you know what? And even if you hadn't flip-flopped, I'd have ruled in favor of the families anyway, because it's wrong. 20 years ago, my predecessor said to all you schools, get rid of your native mascots. Do it in a timely fashion. 20 years later, you still got, I, I think there's like over 100 schools in New York State that are still calling themselves everything from Redskins to Warriors to Savages to um, Indians, any, any number of names. So she ruled against, uh, uh, you know, against uh, Cambridge, and so the the mascot is essentially gone, um, in concept. But it, all of the stuff supposed to be gone by the by the end of the school year. Well, <laughs> last night Cambridge was going to have its board meeting, and on their agenda was a resolution to fight Rosa. They were going to appeal her ruling in um, state appeals court arguing that she indeed was arbitrary and capricious in uh, in, in telling them they had to uh, get rid of the mascot and that she was overreaching her authority. So that's the resolution, and they were going to vote on it last night. <laughs> but the craziness that's begun to happen, and look, I know there's other people who've done accounts of what's happening at the school board level. School boards have become the new battleground for the right asserting its presence and its philosophical, it's social agenda. And, and in many ways, it's, it's the way that the right is trying to build a stronger grassroots coalition by, by doing it right at the school board level. I mean, many school boards, when you ran for a school board position, you didn't even put a party affiliation. You didn't, there weren't Democrats and Republicans. It was just a bunch of guys ran for school board and whoever got the most votes won. It wasn't right or left. Well, that changed. <laughs> the mascot issue is one of those polarizing issues that started dividing people along political lines. The right was all pro mascot, and the left, predominantly, um, understands that race-based mascots are a problem. But there are other issues. COVID nineteen, anti-vaxxers are right. You know, pro-Trumpers are right. Anti-maskers are, are right. The all the the critical race theory hysteria—that's all on the right. Any idea that is that that people can somehow construe as being. Promoting a socialist agenda, things like equity, <laughs> diversity, equity and inclusion, anti-discrimination laws. Oh, those are just left. That's left wing propaganda. Banning books. Yeah, that's that's those guys on the right. So last night. They they tried to open up the meeting. And there's at least a dozen. Some of them claimed that there was 30, uh, 30 of them that showed up at this board meeting. And now. Look until the, I raised the mask issue in Cambridge, there was hardly anybody that showed up for these things, but they showed up, and like I said, somewhere between 10, 20 of them, they, uh, maybe 30 they, they went in without masks. Now why they were even allowed in without masks is, is a problem. But when the board came, uh, opened up the meeting, they they, flat, they first said, "Look, you got to wear masks." And the people started screaming bloody murder like. Like they were somehow being tortured. They were they were rattling off Bible quotes quotes. They were they were suggesting that they were not gonna be a part of some Satanistic ritual. Satanic rituals is what they were calling, masquering. Satan I mean, there were people making all kinds of claims about what was gonna happen to all you guys who got vaccinated, you wait and see what happens in two years. I don't know what the hell they think is gonna happen in two years, but so this is the nuttiness that's happening at school boards. And look, we've seen, and, and I've talked about it on the show, we've seen Violence of these things—guys punching school board members out. So, and keep in mind, most of these guys, most of these school boards are small. They're volunteers. They're people from the community. Why would anybody want to subject themselves to that? Become a school board member. I mean, you do it because you care about kids and you, and you care about the school and, and funding it and um, you know making sure all the infrastructure is there and, and, and you know you do. That's why people join, but. Then it turns into a political fight over mask wearing, which isn't even the school's call. That's it's, it's usually a state mandate that's involved in this. I mean, according to the state, you couldn't go to a school board meeting and not wear a mask. It, schools were one of the places that, that masks were still mandated. It, it's a simple answer. It's a simple proposition, but that's what took, so they ended up shutting down the meeting. They just shut it down. So. Even though the pro, the anti-maskers and the pro mascot are the same people, (laughs) for the most part, they end up cutting their own throat a little bit because they didn't get a chance to vote on the resolution to appeal the the mascot ruling by uh, Commissioner Rosa. Now, they're going to try to do it now behind closed doors. They're going to do it in some sort of virtual setting. But the crazy part is the reason you have virtual meetings was because of COVID. Cambridge is now saying, no, we're going to do virtual meetings because we can't handle the public coming into our meetings. Well, the whole idea of a school board meeting is supposed to be a public event. You're supposed to make these rulings, have these discussions, have comment periods in full view and open to the public. Now you can still put them, you can still record them and broadcast them, but the, but the meeting is not supposed to take place virtually. I realize that some of them did happen virtually because of, COVID-19 restrictions. But Cambridge isn't going to go to a virtual meeting because of COVID restrictions. They're going to a virtual meeting because they, because the public is too unruly. They've lost their freaking minds out there. And look, I know the Washington post has covered this, this story. The New York times has covered this story. I've been in local papers from Albany, all the way out here to, to, you know, to the Buffalo um, uh, media market talking about this issue. And Schools like Cambridge, and, and let me say that. I mean schools like Cambridge, because Cambridge isn't the only one. I mean, it's easy for me to pick on them because it's my old, it's my alma mater, right? It's, it's a school that I graduated from. I mean, I know Cambridge. I, I know some of these families. So it's easy for me to pick on them. But there are schools in rural America in every state. They're just like, we've seen it across Pennsylvania, Vermont, New Hampshire, you know, Ohio. We see this every place, Indiana, I mean every place, these rural towns that are these pockets of deep-seated right-wing political ideology. And it wasn't always that way. I mean, a lot of this stuff grew in its strength and its fervor during the Trump administration. I'm not blaming him. I mean we can, but uh, but that sentiment had to exist before Trump. I mean, he, he didn't just he didn't plant the seeds, he may have just watered them a little bit. But this is this is the political reality. This is how divided Americans have become. They can't even have school board meetings, public school board meetings anymore. I mean, without the chance of you know somebody punching you know somebody in the face like they, like uh, what occurred in Glastonbury, Connecticut. I mean, Cambridge is really on the tipping point where violence could happen, vandalism could happen. And we'll see. I mean, the likelihood is they're going to meet behind closed doors with some computer cameras or whatever else, a Zoom meeting or whatever, and they're going to vote to spend $100,000 fighting Dr. Betty Rosa, the commissioner of education in New York. They're going to spend $100 to fight it because the claim is it's going to cost them $100,000 to change their mascot, which is crap. I mean, there's no way, I mean, Other than, you know, uh, maybe a detailed drawing on the gym floor, most of them is like taking banners down, painting over a wall or something like that. I realize painting a gym floor is a little bit more involved. Most of these schools, and I've been going through this with another school called Schoharie um, uh, out in that Albany area. Most of these schools don't even realize that their sports uniforms, they don't even have the logos on them anymore. They don't say Indians on them anymore or Redskins or Warriors. They just had the name of the school. Why? Because school board members have known this was coming. And although most of them don't really have the courage to take on the backlash from their community, they've been quietly positioning. There's less and less of these mascots on their websites. I mean, some of them are over the top. Some of them haven't. But you go into Cambridge School, and that place is plastered every wall, every, you know, ceiling you know every roof truss every beam every they have they have chairs folding chairs that all have the logo on the on the backs. I mean it is it's over the top I mean and it, the crazy part is their logo is one of those stereotypical images of a native person but it's in white face I don't even get that I don't even get why Cambridge Indians their Indian logo is in white face but it is and that's that's what they decided to have. So they're going to spend hundred thousand dollars easily, and they're and they've already spent a hundred thousand. They hired a, a firm that came in that was supposed to do healing circles to help them um, mitigate the, the the sense of loss that some of these people were going to have, and the the hurt and the harm that they felt over the mascot debate, which is you know which was crazy, didn't work out very well. They've already paid their lawyer. You know, probably ten, twenty thousand dollars on top of that. So they're probably real close to a hundred thousand dollars spent on this mascot issue already. They're going to spend at least another fifty to a hundred thousand dollars fighting it, trying to appeal it in the state. And the chances of them winning are pretty slim. I mean, Betty Rosa laid out a pretty good um, case for her ruling, and of course, the the law firm that represented uh, Cambridge School didn't even really didn't even argue it. They they didn't refute any of the evidence, and that was her point. You guys retired the mascot based on this mountain of evidence, and then the next meeting unretired it without ever refuting the evidence that you based your retirement on. You know, it was a pretty easy ruling for her, and and of course she does cite law that you know that backs up her authority to to make this ruling, and of course they do have. Look, there's, there's anti-discrimination laws that didn't even exist 20 years ago. There's the Dignity for All Students Act that uh, that's supposed to protect against discrimination. If you have, if you're promoting a stereotype of a people that aren't even there, <laughs> but, but of a people that are still around, if you're promoting a stereotype, that's, that's racist. That's discriminatory. And as a native person, is the image itself offensive? No, but you're teaching children every year that that's what an Indian is. That, that two-dimensional, that drawing, that relic of the past. And that's problematic because we're still here. And we we have to confront those people because when those kids grow up and get in positions of, you know, of, of stature or wherever they go. And trust me, these are white kids. They're gonna be, in all likelihood, they're gonna have much more influence over, over social policy than we're ever gonna have. And these these the these kids when they're adults we'll have to fight them later, we'll have to educate them, then, because of what they because of what they were mistaught now. But so that's that's the, that's the deal. I mean, the craziness just continues, and it continues at a level that is pretty remarkable. I mean, like I said, you know, Cambridge has become a bit of a laughingstock and embarrassment. The New York Times, the the Times Union in Albany. The Washington Post, I mean, these are all the newspapers that have been covering Cambridge. I mean, this little town of a couple of thousand people, a small school that had a pretty good football team for a while. And this is the news they make. Now staging, you know, unmasking protests, you know, at a school board meeting where they probably would have got a ruling, you know, a resolution that, that they wanted. It's it's craziness, but that's, look, that's the world that we live in. And, you know, and I tell you, part of the reason I talk about the stuff like I talked about in the beginning of the show is this education, this information, understanding what Lincoln did as the president matters. Somebody should know that 38 Dakota were, were marched out, walked onto a gallows with 38 nooses and had the floor knocked out from underneath them, all 38 hanging to their death in one one blow of a mallet. Look, maybe you don't teach that to five-year-olds, but maybe 10-year-olds need to know it and certainly 16-year-olds do. They need to know what Abraham Lincoln did and what occurred a week before the Emancipation Proclamation. They need to know that that the federal government passed a law to not only allow and and create these Indian boarding schools, but they funded it for 100 freaking years. They hired churches to indoctrinate Native kids to kill our identities while white kids got to play Indian because it was their mascot, their school mascots. I mean, when I tell the story about residential schools, you would think that that we wouldn't have to have any more conversation. That that should be explanation enough why it's offensive that non-native schools are using native mascots, native images for mascots. Because when your school adopted that mascot, we were prohibited from even retaining our identities. And I don't mean me. I mean my grandparents, my great-grandparents. A hundred freaking years this thing went on. That's like three or four generations of Native people. Their kids were ripped away. And again, that 100 years was one of the largest periods of of land loss and depopulation. Girls were sterilized. People, kids died. Every one of those schools had graveyards. And the nerve of some people to cite with pride. Well, Carlisle Indian School, that's where Jim Thorpe went to school. And what what a noble figure he was. Carlisle Indian School was a prison camp with a graveyard, over 200 people buried, and even hundreds more that were sent home to die because they were so gravely ill from that school. Don't you dare tell me that Carlisle Indian School was some iconic native school. It was iconic, all right, but not not in a good way. Folks, that's why I do the show. And I know, I, I get some feedback every once in a while. Man, why don't you talk about something new? Well, I do. I, I mix it up. But, you know, I got to tell you, sometimes this stuff just demands repeating. And until I start hearing some of this information back from white people, till I start hearing white people, because look, we can't change things on our own. We're not a big enough population. We need white and black and and Asian. We we need allies. We're not a big enough population to to affect change. We couldn't make the, the Washington football team change its name. We needed Black Lives Matter to make noise. We needed FedEx and Target and Walmart and Amazon to make noise. That's why we do what we do. Look, I want to thank you for listening. Again, support uh, WBFW uh, and WBAI. And um, we'll see you next time. This is John Gain, and this is Resistance Radio.